let's be honest, the costs are not what they used to be. The barrier to entry for live streaming, you know, any any twelve year old kid with a with a phone and a cheap microphone can do it. Any twelve year old with a microphone can do a podcast for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, oil workers on foreign flagships don't have the same protections as workers on American vessels, leaving many of them vulnerable. A new report from a local watchdog group is urging all government bodies to permanently retain the COVID-era practice of live streaming public meetings and to make it a law to do so. As a candidate, Jason Williams promised a comprehensive review of all split jury convictions in Orleans Parish. The pace of the reviews has slowed, but the DA's office maintains it's making progress. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter, Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter, Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Morning, Kaylin. Sarah Sneath, a reporter for Floodlight, an environmental news collaborative. Hi, Sarah. Hi. And Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. Hey, Charles. Morning. Okay, Sarah, we're going to start with you. Oil workers on foreign flagships are not protected by many of the labor and environmental laws that regulate American vessels. Offshore oil work is, of course, it's really, really dangerous, which is why we have safety regulations that govern American flagged ships but you've identified what's apparently a widely used loophole for companies. Can you explain what that loophole is? Yeah, so basically there's um, a law called the Jones Act, and that is what usually makes it so that ships in in the, I guess, U.S. waters, um, they have to be American flagged. So like, for example, if a ship is going down the East Coast, it has to stop at all these American ports. It has to be U.S. flagged because flagged because it went from, it started from a U.S. port and then it went to another U.S. port. So if you're like on a cruise line and you notice that the ship stops at like a little island that's not not a U.S. island, the reason why they're doing that is because they can't go to two U.S. ports in a row. Um, Mm. That's because they're not American flagged. So this is the same thing with these drill ships. These drill ships have found ways to skirt around the law and um, well, work under work under the law, um, and and be not flagged U.S. They're flagged other countries, and the U.S. Border and Protection has issued these things called letter rulings that basically allow that to happen, and that's made the practice more widely um, more widely used in the oil industry. Okay, and so the the benefit for companies that operate under foreign flags are that they don't have to. Uh, follow all the environmental and safety regulations of American flagged ships. Yeah, and also labor uh, practices. So such as, um, you know, uh, minimum wage, they wouldn't have to necessarily follow U.S. minimum wage if they're flagged Liberia or something. So they're able to pay people less and they, um, yes, have, like you said, less safety lesser safety like regulations when we use the term flags of convenience it's kind of like these countries that allow ships to register with them and they have no actual tie with the country so there's no one there's not necessarily any workers on board that are of that um, nation they the ship wasn't made in that country what is helpful for the companies is that those countries allow them to have looser regulations and it's cheaper if you don't have to 
if you don't have to follow more stiff regulations. Of course. I was actually wondering the opposite, if the opposite would be true in that if a worker was applying for a job and they knew that this flag was Liberia, for example, as opposed to the United States, perhaps because they weren't covered by the same rules that those companies would be obliged in order to attract workers to pay them more than American flagged operations. And it's in fact the opposite. Yeah. Okay, so so these workers just go to these ships. Do they know? I mean, I, I guess I'm asking you to, to answer for a, a, an average oil worker who might be working by a, a Liberian flagship, for example. Are, are they aware of the risk that that might pose? I'll say that if you go to like a lot of maritime uh, lawyers websites, they have a page on this that says, you know, be uh, aware of the flag of the ship that you're on. But I, I just I always hesitate in general to put a lot of these uh, onus on on workers. Right. Because it's the workers just trying to find a right. job and they might be put on a contract. And I don't even know if they know what ship they're assigned when they when they sign up for a contract. But you can use the U.S. Coast Guard's, uh, there's like, there's a search engine that you can use and you can use it to look to see what the flag of the ship is and when it was last inspected. So you can do that if you're interested. And also, I, I know that a lot of these offshore workers, their families know that they, that this is such a dangerous job that they do track them too. There's, there's like um, ship trackers that family members will use just to make sure they know where their loved ones at when they're offshore. Right. Okay. Can you explain the history of the, of this loophole, how it came to be? Yeah. So like I said, there's the Jones act and that actually should make it so that most of these, most of that, all of these flags should be um, American, but the customs and border protection, they, like I said, they issued these things called letter rulings. So basically kind of exemptions um, in practice that, have said that it's okay if you have a different foreign flag if you carry such and such items and and so it's kind of it gets into the nitty-gritty and i don't know all of the nitty-gritty but i'll just say that it's worked in a way that it's allowed the oil industry to use more of these um foreign flagships mm, okay uh your story discusses one particular uh one particular vessel that was out in the Gulf during Ida's approach. Can you explain what happened on that ship? Yeah, the Globetrotter too was in the middle of some work. And basically it, it, was a, it was a ship owned by Noble Drilling and it was being contracted by Shell. And it was doing some completion work on a well. So the ship was actually attached with pipes to the seafloor. And the Noble and Shell were via their emails were monitoring this storm and it and from the emails um you can see that they knew that the storm was coming it was coming into the gulf and all of the neighboring platforms had been evacuated at a certain point and the drill other drill ships in the area had left but they did not tell their workers to leave they wanted them to finish the job and it was actually the captain of the ship um, who's unnamed in the in the federal agency reports, but um, it was the captain of the ship that that actually finally said, "We gotta go." And when he uh, said that, they actually still weren't fully disconnected from the bottom of the seafloor. So the ship had to start moving out of the way, and it broke off some of the pipes hanging from the bottom of the ship. 
and it spilled oil that was on the top of the ship to like some lubricants and stuff. And the, in the story, I say that there are waves as tall as oak trees because I did like a mat, the math to make sure that that was right. <laughs> um, and now every time I'm like walking around and I'm looking at the oak trees um, in New Orleans, I'm just thinking about that, that like waves that big um, being on a ship and, and experiencing that, how scary that must have been um, in the legal filings. It says that the workers were just being tossed about, you know, a lot of the injuries that they um, had were back injuries. Some of them had traumatic brain injuries. So pretty serious stuff. And it could have been much worse, you know. And there was, I don't know, some stalled legislation to try to protect these workers in Louisiana. Can you talk about that history for a second? Yeah, that actually would have been a federal law that would have... um, that would have closed some of these exemptions that the Customs and Border Protection has issued. So it would have basically made that more of the ships doing different jobs uh, in the offshore industry have to be American flagged. And that amazingly had support from like Jeff Landry and all these Louisiana lawmakers, um, even though the oil industry was very against it. But, you know, we have a, a big shipbuilding industry here in Louisiana, and, there, and there's all the workers, too, that are on those ships. So I think that the lawmakers were, were you know, looking out for those folks. And, yeah, unfortunately, the oil companies pushed back, and the process for rulemaking was just ended, you know, before, before it moved forward. Right. And another problematic area for this industry is the regulatory agency that oversees the reporting that happens they apparently are under-reporting worker deaths. Can you explain what's happening? Yeah, that kind of is how I got started on this story and a couple of stories I've done previous to this. The Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, they have a web page that lists like the numbers of fatalities that have happened every year and also uh, blowouts, you know, the things that could cause a lot of trouble or did cause a lot of trouble. And the fatalities were years behind when I first started bothering them about these numbers. They were like three years behind reporting their fatalities. And um, I had to do a FOIA to get that number that, you know, of, of people that they said died offshore by year. And I finally, when I got that, it didn't match what I knew about reported cases of fatalities offshore. Um, And so that's when I started getting into this uh, back and forth with the agency about they don't count offshore workers who die um, on their way out to a well, for example, or on their way out to a platform. So if you're in a helicopter and the helicopter crashes, they would not cause, they would not count that as a fatality in the offshore work industry. I'm sure that most people like myself don't take a helicopter to work. You know, so that, you know, you're increasing your liability by taking a helicopter to work. So I think there's some question as to why they don't count that, you Mm. know. Also, if you're on a platform and let's say you have a heart attack, um, you might be 100 miles from the nearest hospital, but they're not going to count that as a a work-related fatality. They're going to say that's non-work-related and not count it in their, um, you know, records. And that's problematic for the fact that you're that far from the hospital and shift shift work like working on a platform um, actually increases the likeliness that you'll have a heart attack so um, there's a lot of problems with the way that they count the number of people dying offshore and they're already much higher a much more dangerous workplace than than an average onshore rig 
Yeah, and I, I just would say that, like, you know, if, if the first thing to do to, like, you know, to, to um, make some, a place safer would be to actually identify what's unsafe, right? So if you're not even saying what's unsafe because you're not even saying how many people are actually dying and what they're dying from, then um, it makes it really harder to, like, make it safer. So it's really curious why the safety agency for offshore drilling isn't counting these different ways that people die. Um, and so I had to submit a FOIA to the Coast Guard, and I got their count of um, offshore work fatalities and aggregated the two Vessi's uh, fatality list and the Coast Guard. And I found that Vessi hadn't counted 60% of the number of the people who died offshore. Wow. Um, so pretty uh, crazy and, um, and really sad and really, really sad. You know, I've actually had some of the family members of people who died offshore called me at, the, at this point um, and, you know, tell me that they're really frustrated that the, that the safety agency isn't counting their, their family members' deaths, you know, because how, how do you make, again, how do you make the industry safer if you're not even counting the people who died? Right. FOIA, Freedom Information Act, just for, for those who, who don't know that. Um, finally, Sarah, the last question for me is, where does the lawsuit that Globetrotter 2 workers have filed, where does that stand right now? I checked this morning. It looked like uh, they're being settled. The, the suits are being settled. And that's, you know, that's pretty typical. Most of these offshore um, worker lawsuits are settled. And it's but it's through these loopholes that I mentioned in the story that the companies make it cheaper. So that way, when the settlements do happen, they make it cheaper for themselves. And, um, and you know, these offshore injury lawyers say that basically the companies have made it part of the cost of doing business because the regulations themselves are not such that they're preventing these worker fatalities. But when the fatalities do happen or when the injuries do happen, the companies have to pay less because they have these loopholes. Well, they try to pay less. Sarah Sneath, a reporter for Floodlight, an environmental news collaborative. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, Sarah Sneath, a reporter with Floodlight, an environmental news collaborative, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time, and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on donations to fund our work. Please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org donate. Thank you for your support. Michael, a new report from the Bureau of Governmental Research is urging government bodies to keep live streaming public meetings once the pandemic ends and in-person meetings resume. What happened with live stream live streaming these meetings during COVID? Yeah, so um, obviously during COVID, um, in-person meetings had to stop for, you know, the bulk of the last two years that hasn't been happening. And, you know, a lot of government bodies were already live streaming their meetings. So the New Orleans City Council, for example, you know, a lot of city councils, you know, would have already been live streaming. But the, the city of New Orleans is home to 
a number of government bodies. I mean, you know, it, it, we have things like the convention center um, and the, the state body that, that, that runs the Superdome. You know, all of these various government bodies that hold pretty important positions but that historically you've had to come in person to, to get into these public meetings. So I, I think the big change during you know, the pandemic was with these, you know, again, these numerous um, and spread out smaller government bodies um, that you used to have to go in person to. And, and you know, I used to go to some of these meetings in person. You know, it, it really, you know, you're talking about maybe one or two people in the crowd besides, you know, whatever board you're you're at that day. So, yeah, I mean, it really expanded kind of access. And, and you know, the, the city council, while they had already been live streaming, they kind of opened up participation, remote participation, because um, it used to be a requirement that if you wanted to submit public comment, you had to come in person. Um, whereas during the pandemic, uh, you, you know, people were able to participate online. From a personal point of view, it, it allowed me to start watching a lot more public meetings and, you know, kind of just have them on in the background, get a feeling for, you know, what all these bodies were doing. For a lot of residents, um, it allowed them to participate because, you know, these meetings tend to happen between nine to five on weekdays when a lot of people can't attend. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, we did see kind of um, a lot more people participating in some processes than, than we otherwise would have. Okay, and the Bureau of Governmental Research is saying they want that to continue, why? Yeah, I mean, so, so kind of just for the reasons I've outlined, you know, they, they think it is a significant benefit to getting more civic participation, um, getting people to, you know, go to these meetings and, and get to share their input that usually would not. I, I don't know the exact impetus for this report. I, I will say that um, something I've noticed in the last couple of months is that one organization that we have covered in the past, um, the French Quarter Management District, um, has already stopped live streaming their meetings. They have resumed in-person meetings and live streams are no longer available. So that, that to me, kind of was the first one that I saw that, that you know, is kind of reverting to the old ways of doing things. Again, the BGR report is saying, you know, you, you don't have to do that. Um, and in fact, you know, this live streaming option that you had for the last, you know, two years is actually super beneficial. Um, and again, you know, the French Quarter Management District, it, it, it's not as important as, you know, something like the city council but it does control upwards of $2 million in tax proceeds um, that, that it puts to law enforcement in the French Quarter. You know, it's just, it's an unelected body that controls a lot of money. And, you know, an organization like BGR believes that there should be easy access to see what they're talking about. The report looked at four organizations in, in particular um, to kind of see what they were, were planning to do um, after the pandemic. So um, they looked at the convention center, uh, the Louisiana Stadium and Exposition District, which is the state organization that runs the Superdome and the Smoothie King Center. Um, the Regional Transit Authority, which runs the, the, the city's public transportation. And the Southeast Louisiana Flood Protection Authority West. Um, and, and, and to give you an idea, I mean, those organizations combined brought in $229 million in 2019. To put that in reference, the, the, the city of New Orleans, the, the entire general fund, is roughly $700 million. Mm. So all of these various bodies, they're not as big and they don't have as much power as the city of New Orleans itself. But when you combine them, they're controlling a significant amount of money and and, and really, you know, again, their decisions in aggregate are, are super important. So the BGR is not just saying, hey, this would be great. They're actually agitating or, or advocating at the state legislature to make it a law. Well, I think that actually you, you addressed the timing a little earlier. I, I would guess that 
the the legislature is about to go into its regular spring session so i would guess that has a lot to do with the timing of this report is sort of nudging the legislature to get this into state law makes sense yeah you know yeah i i think they start by saying hey if you're a government body you know please go ahead and keep live streaming but if that doesn't work we do want the legislature to make sure and, and they would basically add new requirements based off of how substantial the responsibilities of a public body is so if it's a public body that that you know controls you know a hundred thousand dollars in funds to you know, clean up playgrounds or pick up litter or whatever it is things that that, that don't have kind of that pressing public uh, interest or, or need for participation they're suggesting that maybe for those organizations all that should be required is, you know, an easily accessible online archive of past meetings. However, for, for other organizations, they're saying that there should be a requirement that they are live streamed and that they maintain, you know, a, 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 an archive of, of their meetings online. Because for a lot of these bodies, again, before the pandemic, not only were they live streamed, but if you wanted to get access to a prior meeting, you had to submit a public records request. You had to wait possibly weeks for them to get you an audio recording. A lot of them didn't have videos, so, you know, that that would, you know, I, I sometimes I would get an audio recording of a meeting and they'd be making all these references to a chart uh, that I didn't see, so you can't really put the meeting in context. So they're also supporting, you know, more video and not just audio here. So those are the changes that, that they're seeking here. So right now, as Michael was talking about a bit, the four organizations in the report that Michael mentioned, the reason they focused on them is those organizations are unelected taxing bodies. Um, and under state law and the open meetings law, um, under uh, a provision that was passed in 2013 in the legislature, um, those bodies in particular, unelected taxing bodies, are, 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 are required to record, archive their, their meetings. Now, the way they've interpreted that in many cases is audio recording only and you know uh retaining the 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 audio recordings you know internally but not actively publishing them on a website or that just making them available to people if you know they happen to know you know that they can do a public records request and or you know which often means waiting several weeks to get the get get the recordings you uh requested back yeah and I'll just add one more thing, um, which is that, you know, it, just going kind of back to, to why, you know, BGR would kind of recommend this and why this is kind of important. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm paid full time to try and track these meetings and figure out what's going to happen at them and cover them. And even for me, it's it's a really hard thing to navigate. It's, it, it's not easy to know, you know, if you're interested in a certain thing, it's hard to know when you should go, you know, just, you know, uh, we were just talking about it yesterday, but just because you see something on the agenda of a meeting doesn't mean it's actually going to be discussed and voted on. And, you know, I see it all the time. People who show up to city council meetings, maybe take a day off work, sit there for five hours only to have the thing deferred. And, you know, again, should that be the only way we allow people to participate in, in these kind of public discussions is to come time and time again, hope your item gets raised. Uh, what are the objections that uh, that some some of these small bodies, some of these small public bodies have to continuing the live streaming process apart from, I would guess, the obvious, which would be the cost? Yeah, the, the convention center and the RTA have told BGR that they are going to continue live streaming. Um, the stadium and exposition district said it hasn't decided yet. Um, and the flood protection authority, you know, their response seems to indicate that they're not going to, unless they're required to by, you know, some legal authority. 
You know, I, I don't, you know, the report does not include any, you know, explicit objections. Um, you know, I think that the, the barrier to it is, is some people, if this has never been part of your process before, right, if you've been running meetings simply by getting a space, printing out a paper agenda, a paper sign-up sheet, you know, this just kind of adds a whole new process that you need to um, kind of take on. And it's not, you know, it's not the same you know, live streaming a, a in-person meeting is not the same as live streaming a Zoom meeting, right? So I think that during the pandemic, when a lot of these meetings were, were happening on Zoom, it was a little bit easier to just stream that on YouTube. Right. Um, you know, once you're in person again, not everyone has a camera and, and recorder on them autom automatically. So, you know, the organization themselves would have to bring a camera and audio recording equipment to actually get that. So I, I, I think that well, that wouldn't be exactly an objection. I think that would be, you know, a hesitancy. You know, there also might be public bodies that don't necessarily want increased public scrutiny, right? I mean, bodies that are comfortable doing what they've been doing, doing things without, you know, um, again, a lot of people watching them. I, again, I haven't heard anyone say that, but it, it, it can be annoying if you're, you know, a board or you're a government body and you have people coming in and making objections and, and, and raising problems for you that you have to deal with. So, I mean, that's, one possible motivation. But I think, you know, on the feasibility part that the BGR report argues that ultimately, even if it might be new to some organizations, um, it, it really is not that difficult, that expensive to, to start live streaming meetings. Uh, um, they, they, they noted, you know, some of these organizations may not even have a website. Well, in that case, you know, you can just set up a free YouTube page and send people that link. Um, you know, they also suggested that the, the legislature could appropriate funds um, for technical support for, again, all these really small bodies that might have budgets that are smaller than half a million dollars or whatever it is. So, you know, again, th th there might be some barriers, uh, but BGR argues that ultimately, and with the help of, of the state legislature, that, that the costs would be, you know, uh, really outweighed by, by the benefits of increased civic participation. Right. And the I mean, you know, like, let, let's be honest, the costs are not what they used to be the barrier to entry for live streaming you know any any 12 year old kid with the with a phone and a cheap microphone can do it so really i mean I, this is just pocket change to any organ any agency that has any budget at all and you really have to wonder why they would object to it well you know I, i'll give you an example i mean the, the, the you know the French Quarter management district was not something that i was covering or scrutinizing prior to the pandemic and then the you know, the meetings became easier to see. So I started watching and things came up that were worth covering that, you know, some of which French Quarter Management District has not been, you know, entirely happy with. So, you know, that, that's an example of right there where, you know, just by live streaming, that kind of increased, you know, scrutiny on them. Um, so that could always be a factor. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Nick, during the campaign, New Orleans District Attorney Jason Williams said that he would review all non-unanimous jury convictions out of Orleans Parish when he was running for district attorney. Early on, he vacated over 20 convictions, but since then, the pace has slowed considerably. It's been just over a year now since those first convictions were vacated. What's happening with that process right now? So the office is continuing to, to move forward with reviewing these non-unanimous jury cases. To kind of give some context for this, um, during the campaign, like you said, he, he promised to review all these cases. He said he supported new trials for anyone who was convicted on a non-unanimous jury verdict. He called them, he said they were unconstitutional, which the U.S. Supreme Court had found. And, and at the time when he was 
elected, there was a Supreme Court case pending, uh, a United States Supreme Court case pending, um, that would decide whether or not their initial finding of, of, of the uh, verdicts as unconstitutional would apply retroactively to to all cases um, that that had non-unanimous verdicts. And, and during that time, Williams basically said, it doesn't matter what the United States Supreme Court finds in this case, because I consider that ruling retroactive. I'm going to apply that mm. ruling to to all these cases. Um, so so that was when he when he was elected, that was sort of this the status of, of things. And you know, early on within in February, so within a couple months of his of him taking office, he vacated these 22 convictions and and did it in this in this special court hearing um, where kind of one by one, the the chief of, of his civil rights division, Emily Ma, and uh, the head of his appeals division, uh, Ben Cohen, sort of went one by one and 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 said, you know, this this verdict was unconstitutional and um we have agreed to vacate it, and they did it for this one section of court, and they called a press conference afterwards and, and kind of had everyone, uh, defense attorneys and civil rights attorneys behind them, and kind of said, you know, this is the beginning of, of this big project. So that the thinking and what they said was that they were going to go section by section, and we sort of anticipated that, you know, there would be these big hearings every several months where, you know, a couple dozen people would have their convictions vacated and, and would would get new sentences. Most of the cases in this in this first round were people who had agreed to lesser sentences. They took plea deals. Um, a number of the, many of them got out of prison. So that that was sort of what what happened. And it, and it really was, you know, I think from my perspective, this sort of impressive display of of keeping a promise. You know, t- reviewing these cases is is. Uh, time-consuming, you know, DA's offices have conviction integrity units that review potential wrongful convictions, and, you know, they might only get through a handful of cases every, every year or only really address a handful of cases every year. So so it really was, so it, it seemed like a big deal, and I think there were questions at the time whether or not this pace was sustainable. Right. Um, so right. following that big, uh, big, big court hearing, there was also a lot of pushback from a fair amount of pushback from victims in these crimes who said that that they weren't uh, fully consulted on the deals that, that the DA's office was making with the defendants who had been convicted um, of these crimes. And there was some kind of contentious press ar- around it um, at the time. So, you know, some, some time passed after that, and, and we never really got another instance where where kind of they did these batch um vacating of convictions um so the office has now said has now kind of acknowledged that they've changed their strategy they are not doing it court section by court section anymore they're doing what they're calling a more individualized review of these cases and kind of taking them as they come um but the result is that that now after you know a year they've they've they say they've addressed 61 cases um, so compared to the 22 they did within the first couple months, it's slowed down considerably. Right. They are still moving forward, but, but it's definitely slowed. So one of the big concerns to continuing at this pace is, you know, the potential that uh, people in these big batches, some of them uh, might not take deals that are being offered. Just to clarify for people, so there's a couple different like buckets of old cases that the Civil Rights Division is looking at. If 
the DA's office and civil rights division of the DA's office discovers a case where, you know, there is some some newly found proof of factual innocence or there is, um, you know, indications of prosecutorial misconduct that would fall into a even even if it is a split jury conviction, that would fall into kind of a separate bucket for wrongful conviction. So we're talking about cases here where the DA is confident that it was a good and legally obtained conviction and therefore does not want to just drop the case altogether. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, like you said, there's some overlap here. So I think, you know, I, was, I for the story I interviewed Emily Ma, who's the, the chief of the Civil Rights Division, and she basically said that, yeah, there are these cases. I think that those those claim, those claim cases where there, there is also an innocence claim or also a, a claim of prosecutorial misconduct or some other civil rights violation in the trial, those are counted in the, their kind of general count of split jury cases too. Mm -hmm. um, but they are basically, you know, Chief Moss said, these, those are the most difficult cases they have to deal with actually, because some sort of negotiated plea deal might not actually be the right, you know, outcome if this person is actually innocent, you know, right. should they be offering some, something like that if they, if they believe that there is a, a strong claim for factual innocence. So yeah, there, there's kind of some overlap in, in those cases. And then they're also, you know, looking at all sorts of other cases and, and wrongful convictions that may not have a, a split jury verdict. But in terms of the cases that do have a split jury verdict where they may not have a, a, a claim, a, a strong innocence claim or the DA's office feels that there's pretty sufficient evidence um, those, it seems like they are trying to come up with some sort of plea agreement or some, you know, they're saying that they're, they're trying to work with victims' families and basically come up with whatever they think of as the most just outcome. Um, right. And so, so yeah, and if the DA feels that there's sufficient evidence, again, he's not, he's not just going to vacate and then dismiss. He's, he's going he's, he's gonna to want either want a, a, a guilty plea on a lesser offense, allowing them to get out of prison. Um, but maintaining the the conviction, or he's going to want a crack at a retrial now. And and what Emily Moss said to you was, you know, the the fear is that a large number of people won't take the deals we're offering, uh, which would force us to go into retrial mode. Which you know we're talking about hundreds of cases here. Right. So this is sort of the they've been sort of delicately using language around here and around this issue because during the campaign. You know, Williams was very clear that he felt these <clears throat> convictions were unconstitutional. He said he would support new trials for people still in prison on non-unanimous jury convictions. And he said his office would not use procedural bars, which would basically be the tool that they would have to object to uh, these post-conviction applications where someone has a, a non-unanimous jury. So, you know, from my perspective, that was when, when he said, I'm willing to review these cases, as well as, you know, I'm in, I support new trials. That was coming very, very close to a commitment to agreeing to vacate all these cases. And I think that that's, you know, also what, what, you know, civil rights attorneys who are working on these cases heard as well. Now, you know, when I asked Chief Ma, I said, are you committed to, to vacating all these cases? She said, no, basically, um, we're taking these uh, one by one, and we want to 
you know, we they're committed to addressing all of them. But she said, you know, I, I said, if what if someone doesn't agree to a deal that you think is is you know reasonable? Are you committed to vacating and retrying those cases? And and they basically said no. You know, admittedly, they are in a little bit of a tricky position because their ability not to vacate a conviction is is one of their strongest kind of negotiating tools uh, when talking to these people is, is, you know, if someone, for instance, has a 20 year old murder conviction and maybe the DA's office isn't quite ready to cut a deal where, where this person gets out of prison, they could say, well, I'll take my, you know, you agreed to, to vacate these convictions and I'll take my chances, you know, in another trial and trying a case that's 20 years old can be um, a really difficult thing to do um, with with evidence and, and, and witnesses and, and things like that. So, you know, it, it is, they are in a, a bit of a, a position where I'm sure that, that, that they're hesitant to say we're committed to vacating all, all of these convictions because, you know, that, that could um, kind of reduce their negotiating power in some, some of these deals. Yeah, right. that's a good point. Uh, I mean, so, so you know, on the one hand, the, there are these practical issues, and not to mention, and this is something I remember we talked about a year ago, they also have this huge uh, COVID-related backlog, and, you know, jury trials have just uh, reopened this week, and they're, you know, trying to do sort of a monumental number of trials, uh, you know, every week, every day, and, and not really meeting those ambitious targets for, for understandable reasons. But, you know, on the other hand, this is another situation where what seems like very specific promises were made and, and, you know, I think arguably have been rolled back somewhat, including the procedural objection part, right? Yeah. So, and I, I've had the Chief Ma wrote a letter to one of the, the main civil rights organizations that, that's kind of advocating for these people in prison and representing them, Promise of Justice Initiative, saying basically the office would reserve the right to use procedural objections if, uh, if they hadn't had time to review a case and if they couldn't get a judge to kind of stay the proceedings. Um, I'm not sure if that's happened yet, if they've actually used procedural objections. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a a bit of a kind of a step back, definitely, in at least the way that they're talking about it. I mean, I should note that the kind of the the people with PJI and other kind of prisoner advocacy organizations, they're not at the point yet where they're kind of frustrated with with Williams' office. They're, you know, I think still still believe that they're committed to doing this and still kind of see progress being made in these cases. Um, and compared to what's going on throughout the state with other DA's offices where, you know, there's, there's little or no movement in, in, in most of them, I think that they are hesitant to kind of <clears throat> be too critical of what's, what's happening in New Orleans. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you can, you can see some, some, there's some daylight between what was said certainly during the campaign and, and, and early on, um, in the, in his tenure and kind of what's going on now. Yeah, yeah, but but I I think you're right to point out um, PGI's uh, current position on this. I mean, uh, this is the only DA's office that I'm aware of that's made such a commitment to do a comprehensive review of these cases. The only other one that really has said anything about it that I've seen is Caddo Parish, which 
um, made a very, you know, it, it, it is, is reviewing uh, split jury cases or has been, but, you know, didn't make a public commitment to go through all of them or, or all the ones where people are still in prison, like, like uh, D.A. Williams's office did. So, you know, that's, that, that's, that's, that's also something to keep in mind as well. Yeah, that's right. And then, the, I mean, the other thing is, is what PJI is hoping for is that the state legislature or the state Supreme Court will force uh, both Williams and, and, and every, everyone else in the state to vacate these convictions. Um, there's, there's, current, there's legislation pending at the next legislative session that would do that. And then there's also a, a state Supreme Court case that um, will likely decide whether or not that happens. Okay. Thanks for the update, Nick. Thank you. All right, you all. Welcome back after Carnival. Thanks, Carolyn. Talk Thank you. Later. See you later. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crestel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado, and special guest Sarah Sneath a reporter with Floodlight, an environmental news collaborative. Her story was a collaboration between Floodlight News and HuffPost. Sarah's stories will continue to appear in the lens as part of a new partnership with Floodlight and the Louisiana Illuminator. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.